You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he had also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This week, Colleen and I actually went to the movies. It's kind of wonderful that you can get back into the theater. So we went over to uh, Colorado Mills. We saw the new Bond movie, No Time to Die. And uh, Colleen said to me later, she said, you know, uh, Daniel Craig doesn't have anything on you. (laughs) Well, that's obvious. And I said, other than, than hair, worldwide fame, and, uh, and charm. And she said, well, you forgot witty. <laughs> it's wonderful being married to a comedian. I remember one, one uh, Saturday, there was a winter storm going on, and, and uh, my family, Colleen and I and our three kids, decided to watch all of the Lord of the Rings movies in order. And uh, that was about eight hours long. We had a great time. We really liked the, the Lord of the Rings movies. And in those movies, there's both, there's uh, Bilbo Baggins, and then there's, there's Frodo Baggins, and they have their menagerie of friends. We, we see it with uh, Bilbo up there. And they're on a quest. And it's based on the books written by J.R.R. Tolkien. And the Lord of the Rings was intended by Tolkien to be an epic story, but also a metaphor for the gathering darkness and the rising threat of Nazi and communist totalitarianism that was rising in Europe at that time. But then also as a follower of Christ, it was a meta-narrative for following Jesus Christ on mission uh, in the world against evil. And we see in this scripture that was read for us so eloquently this morning that, that Jesus lived on mission. If you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 and look down at verse 12. And it said, one of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And so Jesus, as he's on mission, shows us the absolutely critical nature of prayer if we want to know and we want to walk with God and have his plan and his power active in our lives. So if we want to walk with God, if we want to see God be active in our lives, if if we want our lives to make a difference for good in the world, then like Jesus, we need to prioritize prayer in our lives. The scriptures are really clear that Jesus lived a life of prayer. Jesus loved to pray. It was a passion of his. The apostles observed his life, and when they did, they didn't ask him, teach us to gather a crowd, or teach us to do miracles, or teach us how to communicate with power. After watching and observing Jesus' life, doing life with him day by day, the apostles asked him, teach us to pray. We see in the scriptures that Jesus prayed the night that he was betrayed, that when Jesus heard that his cousin John the Baptist had been killed by King Herod, he withdrew and prayed. It says in the scripture, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places where he prayed. And then one of my favorite scriptures is in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, where it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went out to a lonely place where he prayed. 
Erwin McManus, in his book, The Unstoppable Force, speaks about the power of prayer. He was a young pastor in, in South Dallas, a small congregation. They, were, they, they didn't have uh, monetary means. Several of the people in his congregation were on welfare. And they began to pray that the Lord would provide land and so they could have a church building. And so they got a loan from uh, the Baptist Association that their church was part of, and they were able to get... Uh, an acre of land in an ideal uh, place in downtown, uh, downtown Dallas. But in the process, after they got the land of obtaining the building permits, they discovered that the city said that the property had been declared unbuildable. The acre was a prime location, but it was a worthless landfill. In the unstoppable force, McManus said this, we had bought an acre of garbage. Several core samples were taken. From what I understand, they went at least 25 feet deep and found nothing but trash. All I could do was ask our congregation to pray with me and believe that God was with us and that he would even use the worst of human mistakes to perform the greatest of miracles. So they prayed for months. And then a godly woman in the congregation that they held in high esteem because of the quality of her walk with Christ came and said, we've been asking the Lord to redeem this land, and so shouldn't we believe that? And McManus felt uh, the witness of the Spirit in his heart, and so he went and had more core samples taken. And in Unstoppable Force, he goes on to write this, that this time the researchers found soil instead of garbage. And so he wrote this. How did this happen? Was it because the core sample was in a different part of the land, or could it be that God had actually performed a miracle and changed the landfill to good land? What I do know is the same realtor who sold the property to me came back and offered me three times the amount he had sold it for once he heard the clearance to build had actually come through. What I do know is that the previous owners could not build on the property, but we could. What I do know is that we are told the property was worthless and unusable. What I cannot tell you is what happened beneath the ground at 2815 South Irve Street in Dallas. All I can tell you is what I know, and that is that God took my failure and performed a miracle. Today, Cornerstone Church worships on that acre of land in a sanctuary built by our own hands. Never underestimate the power of prayer. And so if we desire to know God, we desire God to be active in our lives and for us to draw close to him, like Jesus, we need to be people of prayer, praying faithfully, praying before decisions, praying at the beginning of the day, praying when we lie awake at night on our bed, pray when we're afraid, pray when we face challenges which intimidate us, pray for others who need God's help, like little Bodhi, to obey 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. So Jesus prayed all night, it says in verse 12. What was he praying about? Look down at verse 13. When morning came, Jesus called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Jesus prayed about choosing his leadership team. Jesus was building his church so he felt the weight of choosing the right men to lead the church when he would leave the earth. Men that he would do life with and pour his life into for three years. This is a mission-critical decision. 
Notice that it says in verse 13 that he called his disciples to him, which is the mission statement of Rockland Church. A disciple is a student or a follower. They follow and learn so that the disciple may become more like their rabbi or their teacher or their leader. And every believer in Jesus Christ is called to be a disciple. But out of the disciples, thousands of people that were following Jesus, he chose 12, it says in verse 13, and designated them apostles. The word apostle means a sent one. They're ambassadors. They go and they lead and they multiply to serve unchurched, unreached, excuse me, or underserved people for Christ. They multiply leaders and churches by the power of God. An imperfect analogy would be if disciples are the National Guard, apostles are the Navy SEALs. The, the 12 apostles are in a special category in Christianity, and there's seven distinctives. There's probably more than that, but at least seven distinctives of Jesus' apostles according to the Bible. First of all, Luke uh, 6.13, we see that Jesus physically chose the 12 disciples. And then the, the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. They were pillars of the church. They received supernatural revelation by the Holy Spirit, which was then given to us as Scripture. So Scripture was either written by the apostles or by men who were influenced and in connection with the apostles. And then like Jesus, the apostles performed miraculous signs. It says in Revelation chapter 21 that they'll be honored for all eternity. And then we know from church history and then also the Scriptures that all the apostles except for John were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. So these 12 apostles are unique in Christianity. But let's not get the wrong idea. The apostles were ordinary men. Like us, they were flawed and they were fallible. Jesus was a friend of sinners. In Greek mythology, it speaks of our mortal enemy being our nemesis. A nemesis was just like you, except the ruined, corrupt version of you. So in other words, the brilliant Sherlock Holmes, his nemesis was the wicked uh, genius Professor Moriarty. Uh, Winston Churchill had a gift of inspiring people and inspiring England with his words. But Churchill had a nemesis, his ability to devastate people with his words. Once Lady Astor, offended by Churchill, said, Mr. Churchill, if I were your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. <laughs> to which Churchill replied, Lady Astor, if I were your husband, I would gladly drink it. <laughs> so glad you came. Scripture is clear the apostles were ordinary men without formal theological education. It, it tells us that in Acts 4. The apostles were slow to learn and understand Jesus, Matthew 15, 11. At times, the apostles were prideful and would compete with one another for the position of being first, we see in Luke chapter 9. Many times, the apostles lacked faith. One example is in Matthew 8. Then the apostles all ran away and abandoned Jesus on the night that he was arrested. We see that in Mark 14 in other places in the gospel also. So the apostles are an example to us of the adage, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. The apostles were not intrinsically special men. 
They were transformed by being with Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit. The example of the apostles inspires us to become more in Christ, to continue to grow no matter how long we've walked with Christ. And they show us that we don't have to be perfect to be used by God. We need to be available. To follow Jesus and be his disciple, we don't trust in our own goodness, but in his righteousness alone, which we sang this morning. So who are the apostles? Look down at verse 14, if you would. Simon, whom Jesus named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and uh, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Eleven of these twelve apostles were from Galilee. Only one was from Judea. Seven of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector who worked in conjunction with the hated Roman Empire. One was a zealot who couldn't be any further away from a tax collector. Zealots were this radical Jewish political movement committed to doing whatever it takes, including assassination for doing, for overthrowing the Romans. So imagine here's a tax collector and here's a zealot on Jesus's team. And only one of them was really respectable, probably the son of a Pharisee. From Judea, he was the accountant for Jesus' ministry and the one who betrayed Jesus. So let's, today, let's, let's just examine two of the lesser-known apostles, Andrew and Philip. Andrew. Scripture shows us that Andrew was a consummate connector and networker. It was Andrew who brought his brother Simon to Jesus. We see that in John chapter 1. Simon, Jesus named Peter, became the leader of the apostles and the preacher on the day of Pentecost when the church was born. Then Andrew brought to Jesus a young boy with five loaves and two fishes when they were faced, when Jesus and the apostles were faced with 5,000 hungry people. We see that in John chapter 6. Then a third example from Scripture is in John chapter 12, where we read that Andrew brought these Greek men to Jesus who wanted to meet him. So Andrew was consistently bringing people and resources to Jesus. Andrew's brother Peter was an extraordinary leader, but that wasn't Andrew. Andrew's lane was he was a superstar connector and networker. In the movie 42, it's a true story of the Brooklyn Dodgers, the general manager uh, Branch Rickey, and Major League Baseball's first uh, black player, Jackie Robinson. Branch Rickey was not a gifted athlete, but he was gifted in identifying talent. Would there have been a Jackie Robinson without a Branch Rickey? And would we remember Branch Rickey without a Jackie Robinson? In other words, both of them were needed for the Brooklyn Dodgers to be a championship baseball team and for Major League Baseball to break the color barrier. Some of us are Andrews. Some of us, you know, sales and marketing and connecting and networking with people, it's, it's just how we're wired. It's, it's what comes naturally to us. Kind of like what uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about in his book, Tipping Point, that connectors are part of that takes a movement and begins to tip it because they bring people along that are needed. Jesus wants Andrews. If you're an Andrew, he wants you on his team. When I was pastoring a church... Uh, and Andrew in our church was a, a woman named Sarah. 
Sarah was a, a quiet, she was introverted, she was a stay-at-home mom, but there was somewhere between 50 and 100 people, I kid you not, in our church because of Sarah. She just had credibility, and she'd quietly connect with people and then just bring them along. Sarah was an Andrew. Now let's take a look at Philip. From Scripture, we can conclude that Philip was not like Andrew. They were, they were opposites. We can conclude that Philip was analytical, careful, and precise. He had administrative and operational abilities. For example, in John chapter 6, Jesus asked Philip to analyze what it would take to feed a large group of people. And in, in my language anyway, Philip's reply was this, Jesus, I've run the numbers and I've put together a spreadsheet for your consideration, which would show that it, at a minimum it would take three months of average per capita income to feed this group. Okay, that was his gift. Why did Jesus ask Philip rather than any of the rest of the guys? I, I think it's because of Jesus' respect for Philip's analytical and administrative gifts and abilities. Philip defined reality uh, precisely. From Andrew and Philip, we learn that Jesus works through diverse teams, teams made of individuals with different gifts and personalities. Jesus desires each one of us to be on his team, making the world a better place. To follow Jesus, you don't need to become like someone else. You need to be you. And we need your contribution to be able to advance God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. It says that in Ephesians 4.16. From Christ, the whole body grows and builds itself up in love as every part does its unique work. So we need the extroverts, the people persons. We need the, the introverts, the engineers. We need the old. We need the young. We need male. We need female. We need innovative entrepreneurs and careful bean counters, all with the same mission, all with the same leader, Jesus Christ. So Jesus prayed, and then he chose his leadership team. And then how did Jesus develop the apostles as leaders? Jesus did this by living on mission and having them come along. In other words, he gave the apostles on-the-job training. We get a glimpse of that in verses 17 through 26. Look down at verse 17. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man." Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when, people, when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets." One of the key takeaways from this, these verses 
is that Jesus cares deeply about the problems in our world. Jesus cares that there are 785 million people around the globe today that lack clean water or adequate sewage systems. Jesus cares that there's 881 million people that will go to bed hungry tonight around the world. Jesus cares that there's at least 40 million people in the world today that are slaves. Jesus cares that there's over 600 million people who are sexually trafficked around the globe today. He cares about those things. Hence, identifying with blessed are the poor. He also cares about your life and my life. He cares about our temptations. He cares about the, the, the struggles and the worry and the anxiety that we have in our lives. He cares about the addictions. He cares about what we pray about and the burdens of our hearts. He cares for us. And we read this, woe to you who are rich. And what he means is he's speaking to people with money who don't care about the suffering found in the world. He's speaking about people not just generally people that have, that have means, but he's speaking about people that have means that are selfish and greedy. They don't give money and they don't lift a hand to help those around them. You see, Jesus is looking for disciples who value people more than money, whose hearts are filled with God's love that overflows in helping others in their time of need, not because they have to, but because they want to. People who get joy from serving and giving because that's the spirit of Christ within them. It's been said, as long as greed is stronger than compassion, there will always be suffering in the world. And isn't that the truth? Jesus' disciples are filled with God's love. Then they express tangibly in helping others that love in helping people in their time of need. So Jesus, he was absolutely brilliant not only in his example and teaching, but in his development of his disciples and apostles. And today there's at least two and a half billion people around the world that follow Jesus because of the work that he began with 12 ordinary men. These apostles left everything to follow Jesus. Why would they do that? It's because Jesus, following Jesus, meant the deepest needs of the apostles' lives. And they will also meet the deepest needs of our lives as we commit to being followers of Jesus. One need is this. We all have a need to belong. Jesus called the apostles into a team, into a community, like the Fellowship of the Rings or the Lord of the Rings. When he, whenever Jesus sent them out in mission, he always sent them out at least two by two. He never sent them alone. It's interesting that in the Journal of Happiness, they published a study on what separates quite happy, quite happy people from less happy people, and they found that the difference in, in level of happiness was not how much money a person had, it was not their health, it was not their, how much they looked like Daniel Craig or didn't look like Daniel Craig, uh, it wasn't based on IQ or career success. They found that people who are consistently more happy had meaningful relationships with others. Human beings flourish when they belong. Social scientist Robert Putman uh, wrote it this way, as a rough rule of thumb, if you belong to no groups 
but you decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. There's a place for you on Jesus's team. There's a place for you at Jesus's table. Or to change metaphors, Jesus has a jersey on his team with your name on it. You belong here in God's family on Jesus' team. The need to belong is met when we do life with Jesus and with his people. The second need is this, to have meaning and purpose in life. Jesus called the apostles to live life on mission together. Remember Jesus, before he had his public ministry, he was apprenticed by his earthly father, Joseph, as a carpenter. It's interesting that the Greek word in the Bible for carpenter is tekton, and that's where we get the English word technology. Jesus understands that we need meaningful work in our lives, a purpose for getting up on Monday mornings and hit the ground running with energy and hope. So what is the mission if you live as a disciple of Jesus? It's simple, to do God's will and to bless other people, to infuse everything that we do for the glory of God and the blessing of those people that we talk to, listen to, and that we touch with our lives. Benedictine monk Will Dursk writes about the value of hospitality to the point of seeing unexpected phone calls, not as interruptions, but the opportunity to welcome a guest, to help someone else experience the love of God. So Dursk says a short prayer of blessing before answering the phone, and he calls it Benedictimus Domino, which means it might be the Lord. And so when you get that call from Mr. Potential Spam, maybe it's the Lord. Who knows? That's beautiful. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jim spoke about the importance of joy. That was so wonderful. Do you want more joy in your life? Then in Christ, actively live on mission. My wife, Colleen, volunteers teaching Sunday school here at Rockland, and she was assigned, the curriculum had her the last time she taught teaching about Cain murdering his brother Abel from, from Genesis, and she was setting it up about talking about man's inhumanity toward man when one of the second grade boys interrupted her and said, get on with the rest of the story. <laughs> Coley and I got a kick at little guy's unfiltered comment. Probably some of you this morning may be thinking the same thing about me. <laughs> So Colleen went on to say that Cain murdered his brother Abel, and all of a sudden, the second grade boys were locked on, you know? It went from Sunday school to CSI Rockland right there. And so one of them, he leaned forward, raised his hand, and said, how did he do it? Was it a sword or a bazooka? <laughs> Some of you parents, your, your second grade boys really need Sunday school. I just want to let you know that this morning. It was like my son when he was in second grade. God bless him. Just like his mother. <laughs> She's not in this service, so. Living on mission fills our life with meaning and purpose, with joy. Do you want more joy in your life? Go down on a Tuesday night, surf food with Mean Streets, ministry on Colfax. I, I once had lunch up in Westminster with a former U.S. Army Special Forces Delta operator. He had to retire because his foot was amputated. He was amputated because he had overwatch on a, 
on an op in uh, Afghanistan, and he was in the snow, and his, his foot froze, and so they had to cut it off. He said this to me over lunch. He said, what I miss most are my mates and my mission. And I said to him, I said, you can find both in Jesus Christ, and then gave him examples of that. You can find mates, that's us, and a mission, which is to go for the glory of God, to bless others, and to address the darkness, the great problems in the world with the Holy Spirit being our helper. You see, we belong and we have mission in Christ. Not because we are better than other people, we aren't, but because God's grace in Christ Jesus transforms our lives. The apostles were 12 ordinary guys that changed history simply because they decided to do life with Jesus. And disciples of Jesus today, we can be like Frodo and Bilbo Baggins with our mates on mission to save the world from a dragon. There was a woman that was going through King Super. She saw a young man, and, and he had his son in a shopping cart, and the, the little boy was having kind of a meltdown, and as she walked by, she saw this fussy little guy and, and then heard the young father gently say, be patient, Billy. It's all going to be over soon, Billy. And the woman was so touched by the father's gentleness that she said, excuse me, sir, but I'm so impressed by your kindness to your little Billy. And the father looked up and, and confused look on his face and said, huh? Actually, my, uh, my son's name is Patrick. My name is Billy. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus understood that. He prayed all night to be an example to us, to rely not on our own goodness, but he's a, a friend of sinners, which is good news, isn't it? Because at least I'm in that category. Maybe you too. And so we can pray and we can come near his throne of grace. And, and so we then together strengthen each other building each other up. And so the darkness is pushed back just a little bit more in our world. You see, the apostles changed the world because they relied on Jesus' life within them via the Holy Spirit. Life can be overwhelming, but we can be more than conquerors through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I encourage you, live each day as a follower and a student, a disciple of Jesus Christ. So in synopsis, the scripture teaches us that disciples pray faithfully, they follow diligently, they serve joyously, and then they drink deeply at the fount of God's grace. So now as we worship around the Lord's table, may we drink afresh God's grace so that we may go from here overflowing with God's love in our hearts. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Then after the meal, the scripture tells us, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let us come, relying not on our own righteousness, but upon his righteousness alone. God bless you 
as you fellowship with God in worship through communion.